Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. Welcome to Find the Magic. We are here with Greg McCune today. Caitlin and I are so excited. He is the author of Essentialism and his newest book called Effortless. And we think that his concepts can really help you find a more peaceful, joyful state inside your parenting. So welcome, Greg. We're excited. Oh, it's so great to be with you. Thank you. So I just want to start out with Essentialism and Effortless, both of your books touch on things that can bring more magic into your life, more joy, which is our focus on Find the Magic. We really strive inside our parenting and our day-to-day lives to find the most joy that we can, even inside all these tasks that we have to do. And I feel like your books focus on that as well. So can you tell us what sparked the ideas for both your books? Maybe the backstory a little bit. Yes, but now I'm going to give you a backstory you're not expecting. Nobody knows, but I think you will find interesting. Uh, Because um, years and years ago, I was working with an editor at Deseret Book, and we were kicking around ideas for books. None of them, I never wrote any of the books we talked about, but I remember emailing a a few ideas to Emily Watts, who was my editor there at the time. She's recently retired. Um, and one of them she really like fancy to, and it was, I think called accomplish more by doing less. Uh, and I think the subtitle, uh, I think the first subtitle was how blessings flow from saying no. (laughs) (laughs) And we never really went very far with that, but, um, but one of the reasons that I framed the, the book idea that way was because Deseret book is read by women, primarily women aged sort of 35 to 55 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I had spent some time th- like really doing, let's say, deep listening to that group and saying, well, what, what is their pain? What is the challenge? And and you don't you don't actually have to dig very deeply to find the answers to that. Uh, I mean, it's completely overwhelming. Uh, stretch too thin constantly, you know, on the edge of burnout or all the way into burnout. Uh, a sense of perfectionism that can affect men and women, of course, uh, but but certainly seems to skew heavily, uh, you know, even more heavily within within women, and and, and so it doesn't matter how good you are or how you know righteous somebody is or how it's just still not enough uh you know when they hear sacrifice it doesn't matter that they're already sacrificing to an unhealthy level so they say well i've just got to do more that's clearly has to be the answer and so really you know there's lots of it's hard to identify pure causation to anything you do in life that has multiple causes and and lots of influences but one of them that's worth noting is that that there was a, a, a deliberate intent uh, to understand the pain point of 
probably exactly the group of people who are listening to this conversation right now. And so that was years before I wrote Essentialism and years before I wrote Effortless. But it was one of the things that's run like a golden thread through all of the work that I do. So even later when I was working with Silicon Valley companies and noticed a predictable pattern with, with the, the leaders and executives I worked with there, uh, which was that you know, when they become successful, they tend to say yes to too many things. And so then they become overwhelmed and so on. Or whether it was in my own life where I fell into the same trap uh, when my boss at the time uh, emailed me to say, look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting. Uh, and then to my shame, I, I, I did go to that meeting, uh, left my hours old daughter with my wife and, and just, you know, made a fool's bargain uh, and, and came away with a personal lesson, which was if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will, and had a sort of an additional uh, moment of like, yeah, this is something that I ought to study even more deliberately and write about and so on. Even like there are, there are chapters of this story. The origin story had different pieces to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that was personal, my error, my mistake that I'm just talking about there. Uh, but part of it also was just an awareness of pre-existing problem uh, that I think is relevant for, 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 for the people listening right now. Absolutely. I think sometimes like it feels like the society and the world that we live in, there are so many expectations for us, both within careers as well as within our roles as a family. And so it, it feels like you have to do everything to be what you, you feel like you need to be. So I love this book because, um, I love both of your books because I was telling Felicia that I feel like it's something that I want to revisit continually because I think it's so easy to almost sink back into this this feeling of I need to be doing this, this, and this to be this kind of mother or this kind of a a career person, you know, whatever it may be. So I love that you kind of pointed out some things in your life. And, and it is, I think it's like one of those things. I love this book because I think we can revisit it over and over again as our lives kind of change because our, then our demands change and the expectations that we have for ourselves also change. And that, that pain that you felt when you realized, oh, maybe I made the wrong choice. I mean, that little decision process in our heads, you know, we go through on autopilot or unless we don't. Right. And that's what I think your book, you know, that um, there's a quote from Socrates, an unexamined life is not worth living. And I think both of your books make us do that, make us examine you know, what's essential for you is going to be totally different from your neighbor next door. And it gives you the permission to be okay with that. And I love that about your book. It's it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me just riff on that for a second, because I said it a different way recently, uh, which is like rule one in life is, I think something like this, like stop lying about being able to do it all. And, and I say it that way, of course, I'm trying to, to, to say it clearly and, and perhaps a little provocatively, but, but really it's, it's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is, there is a moral case here uh, for, for not just saying yes to everything and trying to do it all. And the moral case begins with honesty. 
You cannot do it all. I, you know, I've, I've studied this for a long time and thought about it for a long time, and I'm not sure I even now fully know the answers, but, but there are, for a combined set of reasons, people, and I would say women especially, but, but, but just people pretend they can do it all. I mean, part of it is what you've alluded to, which is that I think we, we do tell a lot of lies to men and women today about you can have it all. I mean, we say that that kind of language is stated almost exactly like that. Um, and, and even when it's not that way, I mean, I've, I've picked up magazines before that literally have articles on the front stating that how, do, how you can have it all, you know, and then, and then there's other sort of more insidious ways that it's done where we say, well, you know, you have to have a, a big career and you, then you have to have a big family and you have to have a, uh, you know, you, you know, it's not, not enough to just sort of go on a walk each day or, or do a little exercise. You've got to somehow be a be an Iron Man and, you know, you, and it's just like you have to just be doing everything perfectly now. Social media does it. Of course it does. Reinforces that image all the time. Well, you also, or, you know, as well as having, you know, young children, you also have to have a side gig as an entrepreneur. You, I mean, you have to do that. That's what success looks like. And, and look at me, I'm doing it. And I'll show you all the images of success from it. And, and so this, this is a enormous pressure, but it's more than pressure because I think in the end, that, that's why I like the word lie. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. And so, and so when you try to, when you try to live out a lie, uh, but you don't, you're not allowed to say, I don't think this is true. I don't think this is realistic because if you do that, then you're seen as being weak or seen, oh, well, you can't do it all. See, you know, you, uh, you know, well, you lose. I mean, it, it creates enormous stress incredible anxiety and depression. That's what it creates because as soon as you believe two things at the same time, as soon as you believe, I cannot do this, which you have to if something's a lie, is, you know, if something is just not true. So I cannot do this thing. And then at the same time, you think, well, I have to because that's what the culture is saying, well, you have to do it. When you have those contradictions, it is absolutely predictable that you will just see stress Anxiety and depression increase, and that's exactly what we're seeing increase, and and and, and not not by a small amount, you know, uh, and and so something has to give way here. What's giving way right now, generally speaking, is mental health. Um, so there is a consequence, and it's visible and it's measurable. But an alternative thing to give way is to let the lie be seen for what it is, and to stop lying and stop participating in that lie, and just be like, I'm going to celebrate trade-offs. I am not going to try and be like everyone else. And I'm not going to try and do everything that everyone else is doing. I am going to decide what I feel like is the right thing. Listen to the spirit, listen to the conscience, discover what the right path is, that straight and narrow path, not a wide path. Apparently it's supposed to be straight and narrow, (laughs) implying that it shouldn't be everything that everyone is doing. That's wide, broad and leads not to good things. Mm -hmm. Find that, that narrower path and enjoy the journey. I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to be like my neighbor. That's okay. Good for them. I hope they're enjoying that way. I'm going to take a different way. Yeah. We recently talked about um, that illusion of balance. And, you know, as women, it often, when people say, you know, you can't, like the message is you can't find balance. You have to, you know, tip way over into the water on this side and then you have to pull yourself out and then you have to like 
be having this really hard life and tip way over into the other side. So you're either like staying really late at work, but oh, you'll make it up in the next week when you're like doing a lot of really, you know, fun stuff with your kids and buying them a lot of stuff. And then, you know, exactly what you're saying. Then you also need to be like a fitness model. So then you need to swing really hard that way. And, you know, the other week we're talking on our podcast on what if there is balance and it looks more like a gentle swaying between things that you have determined are your essentials and the rest of it, you trim that all off because you can't find balance within that like wild swinging between things. Yeah. I remember when I was serving as, as a bishop for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that I had a woman come to me. She hadn't been coming to church for years and years. In fact, I didn't know her um, at all. But she just came and she was so enthusiastic. I mean, she was capable, intelligent, driven, enthusiastic, and ready. She, she said, look, just put me to work. You know, I'm back and I'm here and I want to go. And in a sense, that was a bit of a tempting moment because there's always work to be done. And in one sense, you're like, great, great. Let's just, we'll give you some, some big challenges. Let's, let's utilize you. Uh, but I listened for a while instead, let her talk for a bit longer. And it discovered what I would now describe as a kind of boom and bust approach to, to church activity. And she literally, I mean, it's more extreme than, than I've seen from other people, but but it's something I think a lot of people could relate to. She would go really strong for a couple of years and then it would just be too much. And she would literally just disappear for two or three years or longer. And then she'd be back later and she'd just go really strong for a while. And then she would disappear. And it was this, that extremity shows what's wrong with everything you're describing is, as we need to find, you know, a path that's of wisdom of order uh, where there is a sane and balanced approach. Uh, and so why? Why? So that there is a sustainable path in this life, a sustainable path to service, to all the things that we think are good, that, that if you can find a sustainable approach, then you can actually give a much greater contribution overall. There's a really remarkable letter that you may or may not be familiar with that, that was sent to uh, President um, George Albert Smith, I don't know if you know this, but George Albert Smith almost certainly struggled with um, severe depression. Yeah. Uh, and, and he had a letter from his, uh, from I, I think it was his uncle, and who is also a, a, a doctor, and, and wrote to him. The letter is so blunt, and it basically says, I, I've heard that you've been going through some massive, you know, acute depressive episodes. And what I will beg of you is that you will rest and look after yourself and take a break. He said, he said, I'll put it to you this way. He said, um, the church surely will want from you, even if it wants your life from you, would rather have it paid in installments over a long period of time. And, and I thought that was really beautiful because to, to live you, to give your life in service doesn't mean to give it all at once in a an act of self-sacrifice that's so detrimental that then you suddenly aren't available, not just in the case that I shared earlier on of suddenly somebody's not coming to church, but you can't show up for your 
you just aren't showing up well for yourself because you are mentally fatigued, physically exhausted for your children, for your spouse, for your family, for your friends, for like, you can't do the work that you are supposed to be sacrificing for. So I absolutely believe that there is a sustainable approach that it's absolutely as wise, it's wiser than the alternatives and it's absolutely doctrinal, uh, even if it's a path less traveled by. We have to start as we move go on. Yeah. So I am about to have a baby. I'm like due in a week. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. And I've been feeling, it's interesting because like I, I read your book in the last few months, Essentialism, and I felt I felt like I really, I loved how you put a lot of really tangible ways that we can, can be intentional about what we're doing. But I feel like in the last couple of weeks, I've been feeling the insane need to just like get my house in order. And I've had this surge of energy that I was like ready to go. Like I was doing it and I felt like I was able to do everything. And then I, I hit a wall where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. (laughs) I'm so tired. And then. And then I was, I was like feeling really stressed because I was like, I have so many other things that I want to do, but I, I don't have the energy or the time to necessarily do them. And so I had to like, the reason why I say, I think this is a good concept to revisit because I think sometimes then I have to ask myself like, okay, at this stage in my life, are, is, is this and this and this actually essential? And like, maybe it isn't. So with that, I kind of wanted to ask you, I think sometimes we deem things as essential that really aren't. So how do you reconcile the feeling and the obligation to tasks and deciding what's worth your time and what maybe isn't? Like, what are those hard questions that we should be asking ourselves to determine what our essentials are? Uh, yeah, I mean, I really struggle with with basically everything in essentialism. And effortless. <laughs> um, so, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in the trenches on this. Uh, because, because of course, if you're a, if you're a high achiever, well, arguably whether I am, but but if you're if you're driven, if you want to make a contribution, it's you want the answer to be yes to everything. You want to be able to do it all. For you know, we've been talking about that. You know, do you want more pay or more time off? Yes, we want a non-essentialist wants the answer to every trade-off to be yes, that you can do both. It's like me in the hospital. I, I'm wanting to do both. Can I keep, you know, Anna and my family happy, also my boss happy, also my own, uh, you know, just desire for, for, for career advancement, happy? You know, can you just do it? Can you find a way to, to do it all, keep everybody happy? The alternative, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a path of... Uh, of you know, it's really great when you start doing it, uh, is to accept, celebrate, embrace trade-offs. And so that when you're faced with two things, you, instead of going, okay, how can I fit them together? Which is a good skill. I mean, you know, if there's a way that you, you know, that's one good skill. Can I, can I go on a walk, listen to a podcast? Right. That might be really complimentary. You might get twice as much out of the activity. So sometimes that's a very effective skill to have. But this other skill is one that's used a lot less, which is just, okay, can I, when faced with an option, when I'm faced with two different things, which one am I going to choose? Let's make a trade-off. And, you know, you use the spirit in the trade-off. Okay, which am I supposed to say no to? What, what do I, what can I cut out here? The word decide comes from the Latin to cut or to kill. 
And so when we're choosing the right, when we're deciding to do the right, we're saying no to something that is good but less essential. And so I think that just even just embracing trade-offs and recognizing that every yes is a trade-off. And so you start to become aware of like, well, okay, which one am I going to say yes to? Which is the which is the better thing here of these? Which is good, better, best? Which is the best thing I should be doing out of these two options? It's it's a bit painful <laughs> because you're really saying I'm going to not do this other thing that I want to do, that I like to do, or that would be good to do, or that someone wants me to do. And and, and so so in a sense, it feels like just loss at first. Mm-hmm. But what you discover, even if you, as soon as you start experimenting with this, is that there's a lot to gain, too, that's not obvious. One of the things you gain is, is immediately a higher level of peace. Because you just go, oh, I can actually do what's on the calendar today. Little space. Uh, you know, okay, I, that's doable. It's doable. I can do this. Instead of living a life where it's actually impossible to be successful, you start to go, wow, that's doable. I can do that today. I'm going to enjoy doing that. I can, I can be present. I've, I've said no to these things, but I will be able to do these things. So the peace is a, is a big advantage. Uh, you, you also gain, you suddenly go, oh, I'm actually going to start living a bit strategically. You, you say, I, I'm choosing to focus on, I mean, I use Anna as an example, although it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit tricky if she was here, she'd be like, oh, don't use me as an example. <laughs> Uh, but she made a trade off. Like our first year of marriage, she was uh, in the national tour of Beauty and the Beast. She was a uh, music, dance, theatre major, BYU, and everyone always used to ask, "Well, what are you going to do with that?" You know, pretty impractical. But the first year of marriage, she was she was well in the national tour, and I travelled with her, and it was this great year. And somewhere along the line, not immediately following that, but somewhere along the line, she, she basically said, "Great, I want to make a trade off. I want to not work for money." For the foreseeable future, uh, I, I want to be able to have children and do this and focus on this. And I remember probably every, at least every year or two, through what's been now years and years, me saying, "Okay, do you want to do? Do you, do you want to have, take projects on outside the work? Do you want to do acting again and so on?" To the point, even though I was trying to be sort of good, good, you know, enlightened man or something, <laughs> that, to the point where she said to me, she's like. Do you think what I'm doing is is less important than that? Like it sounded to her that I was saying you need to do have a career. Like you that, that's that's really important. Where really I was just encouraging her because you know I didn't want her to to look back and go oh I wish I'd had a bit more time to do do something like that. And and so I'm using her as an example not because that's the only trade off someone can make. They can make complete different trade offs, but. I've watched somebody implement this where you say, I'm making a trade-off. I'm really, it's, it's actually quite painful trade-off. I'm choosing not to do something I love to do. I'm interested in doing, uh, I get a lot of satisfaction in, but I genuinely want the trade-off. I genuinely want the upside of that trade-off to be able to say in that 25% of life that is parenting, I did the parenting. Mm-hmm. And, and and so so I just want to sort of celebrate the the right for people, of course, women to actually choose, to actually decide, and to 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 not feel uh, that they have to do everything and then pretend there are no trade-offs, uh, as as we've as we've been saying before. Yeah, there were two things 
there that you said that I wanted to flesh out a little bit. And the first thing is often these trade-offs, I think, you know, for a lot of us, it's a lot of good, really fun things that you want to do. So the if fun or exciting or, you know, will bring, you know, that if you can do them, it will bring you some sort of satisfaction. So then it gets tricky to determine what to let go of because, you know, we always say like, you know, choose, if you're choosing the thing, then that's good. Like you're choosing it. And so to flip it and say, but everything I say yes to, I'm then saying no to another thing that I want to choose. It gets really tricky. So does your process, I mean, and obviously if you read the book, you get the whole process, but does it look something like laying everything out, word vomit, everything you're committed to, and then removing what's not essential? Is that kind of like the overall process a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the essentialism structurally has three steps to it. Explore what's essential, eliminate what's not, and build systems and routines to make execution as effortless as possible. So, so explore, eliminate, execute. And that's akin to, you know, clearing out of the closet, actually. Uh, use that metaphor in the book. And, and, you know, in the book, right, certainly if you sort of Marie Kondo it, then you, you're going to take everything out of the closet, you put it on the bed, and then you go through item by item and you say, look, does this spark joy? If it does, then it goes back in the closet. If it doesn't, you literally thank it and pass it on. I think it's quite lovely that part of the ritual is thanking it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's not a Western idea, but but it allows you to sort of gracefully part with something and to say, well, that has been important, but it's no longer part of my life now. It's not essential now. Mm-hmm. And so you're you know you're you're exploring what's essential. You're eliminating what's not. You're removing it from your life, and then you then you, what you have left at the end is a closet that has less in it, but it's less but better. There's less the space in the closet that feels nice. It's not it's, that stuff isn't bullying you, uh, and also there's enough space that you say, well, there's space for something better too. Like something else could come into my into my closet now. I could I could buy a new Thing that sort of names who I am today and that fits really well and I look forward to wearing now and and so that's that's a satisfying experience and and, and then to, to complete the metaphor it's not enough to do that once you maybe need to do it in a routine way maybe once a week you go through it maybe every day you remove one item and, and every, every week you would maybe you go shopping for something but you only get something if you remove something you, you need an ongoing routine a system to make the execution effortless I'm using that all as metaphor, although I think it is literally true. It's essentialism as it applies to stuff, to our closet. But in our lives, the closet of our lives get even more cluttered than our physical closets. Um, You know, in in our lives, in our schedules, in our commitments, we just sometimes just are in a life of just adding and adding and never eliminating. I mean, actually never. Uh, and so of course we become overwhelmed and stressed in the ways that we're talking about. So, so yes, I mean, I think that, I think that, that, you know, you can use that same process where you could make a list of everything you're doing and then choose, you know, okay, which things am I not going to do? Um, uh, by, by using more selective criteria, you say, look, just even the question, is this essential? Look at the whole list. Is this absolutely essential? Is this is really important right now? You know, of all these things, what's absolutely essential right now, uh, and and in that way, you 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 start to discern between, let's call it the ninety percent rule, 
the 90% or above essential important things and everything else. Uh, because when we get overwhelmed, we start to think of it all as being important and all equally important. And of course, only a few things are really essential at any given moment. Uh, and so, so let me give you an example of that. There's um, a woman in, in England, uh, run, runs her own business, and she started applying essentialism this way. She started asking the question every day, what's the most essential thing I need to do today? What's the most important thing? One thing. There's loads more I'm going to do, but what's the most important thing I need to do? And at first, the answers were to do with her business. You know, she's feeling stressed with that. She's got client work to do. She kept asking the same question every day, but she would get new answers. You know, the answers would change, even though the question was the same. And it became like things of self-care over time. It was, she suddenly realized, I've got to protect the asset. I'm the asset of my life. And if I don't protect that asset, everything isn't going to work. And so she said, well, sometimes it was like, take a nap. That was the number one thing she needed to do today. Or, you know, sleep more. Uh, maybe, maybe it was exercise. Maybe it was, you know, get somebody to come look after the children so that she could go and, uh, you know, go for a walk or read or recuperate. Uh, sometimes it was one-on-one -on -one time with the children. Like the answers changed. Then one day she gets a call from her dad saying, oh, you know, your mother's in the hospital again. It's no big deal. Just keeping you in the loop. I know you've got too much on your plate, you know, loads of stuff. So don't worry about it. Just let me know. And she said when she asked the question that day, her, she said she just remembers everything about that moment. It was so clear to her that she needed to stop everything she was doing and drive two hours to the hospital. So she was committing the rest of the day to this to see her mother. And so she does it. She follows that prompting and she goes, sees her mother. I love you, mum. Mum says the same back. I love you too. It's completely to everybody's surprise within like an hour of that conversation, her mother had fallen into a coma. She never recovered from that. And a week later, she had the unfortunate job of turning off the life support machine. And she wrote to me that story because she said, look, if I hadn't been an essentialist in my life, then I would have made a different decision. Uh, and I would have regretted that forever. So it was a, you know, in a sense, sad, but lovely email to receive. And, and I think that I'm, I'm sharing that example because that's a kind of an alternative way to do it. Instead of thinking about kind of what might be quite overwhelming, look at everything in your life and select all through it and keep only the essential things. You know, there's another way to think about the closet process, same process, explore, eliminate, execute, but in a much smaller way. You just say, okay, just right now, what's essential right now? And, and, and you decide what that thing is and be willing to eliminate one other thing, discard one thing that was, you would otherwise have done so that you can focus you know, on that thing today. Uh, and if I summarize all of this into a single question, I would just say sort of what's important now? There's a question for how to win the day, W-I-N. What's important now? What do I need to do to win today? What is the thing I need to do today that's most important? Once you identify that, it puts everything else into perspective. And you can sometimes shift the orientation of your day around that thing. Uh, and, and that's, I think, a, a, a simpler, faster way to start putting essentialism into, into practice. Oh, I love that. What you said about the, the closet uh, I just had this light bulb of, I like to do this when I'm like decorating a room, but when everything's in it, 
you can't see what the room kind of wants to be. And when you're saying the closet, take mm. everything out, you have this space to bring in that leather jacket that's really like you right now. You know what I mean? But if your closet's full, you're like, I have all these jackets I don't even like. You don't know that you're in the mood to be like a leather jacket person right now. <laughs> and that's what it made me think of. All this stuff, yep. all the time that isn't to our true self, we cannot see where we would find that joy because it's so full. And by just removing some of those things, I think we can more, you know, we can see our true identity. We can more genuinely see ourselves because there isn't so much in the way. And that's what the closet, the closet metaphor made me really think of that. I've never thought about it that way. I like something of what you just said there about the, the, the room doesn't know what it wants to be. And I think that's a great phrase for, for someone listening to this right now is if you're so busy and so full, you're not going to know what you want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and all of us, at least I hypothesize that this is true, that all of us do know what we want to be, but it's buried down underneath all the noise and all the clutter and the Quakers have a term they say uh, you've got to let your life speak <laughs> and I like that idea that 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 underneath it all that noise there's something you know already know but it's hidden from view and it's easier to ignore or easier to just go out you know just ah, that's probably just a you know not really a thing and as you remove the the clutter, it starts to be clearer that, yes, I do know this. And that is who I am. And that is who I need to become. And I don't have to be like everybody else. I'm not in a competition with everybody else. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to become more and more of who I really am and less and less of who I really am not. And, and, And that that once we start to get a glimpse of this, we really do start to be less harsh on ourselves and judge other people less harshly too. That, that it absolutely can be the case that somebody else, you know, could say, no, I, it's really important that I pursue a career and have children. And that that isn't just, they aren't just being absorbed by the worldliness and so on, that that could be absolutely the path for them. And, and so it's that we, we get to the point over time where we are creating space for ourselves to think. I mean, what that looks like for me is, and I didn't do it today at all. I had an early morning meeting to prepare for, and I spent hours preparing for that. And so I didn't spend, I've been trying to do it more recently, where you spend a half an hour doing scripture study and prayer and journaling and all combined. And when I do that consistently, even if I, even two or three days into that, I will find, a much higher revelatory experience where I'm getting insights about what to do and what not to do in my life. Mm-hmm. So that's what it looks like for the personal, but then even interpersonally that we create space for each other. Imagine what it would be if we could create space for people to let their life speak to them. So that instead of trying to tell people what to do, to tell our children what to do. And there is some of that, especially when they're young. Of course, we, we, we're not expecting them to have all the answers, but because you know they're, they're dependent on us, they're smart for a child, but they're not smart compared to an adult. Mm-hmm. And 
So of course, I mean over time to do this, but imagine if you could create an environment where the primary focus of your parenting was to help your child to feel, recognize, and obey the spirit rather than to do what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and you create that space, again, with the Quakers, they, they have a practice that I think is, would be great for us to, you know, all to absorb more of or do more as parents where they, they, they'll even have it where someone has a dilemma and you as the person with the dilemma will call a series of elders, men and women that will come and their job is to help you listen to your conscience. And they do that by asking you questions and restating. They do not give an opinion. They do not tell you what to do. They're not allowed to give advice because the whole belief and assumption is that there is conscience inside of you. And you're, you're just grappling with this complexity that's too complicated to do in your own head. So you need other people to interact with in order to get clear, but you don't need other people to jump in with their, their opinions and tell you, because then you'll be less clear about what you are supposed to do. So I, I think this idea of creating space to get clear about what's essential is true individually in the way I've described, but also true in the parenting domain where you, you, you really are playing the role of coach, playing the role of, of, of believing that your job is to help them discern that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, we've got a hundred things wrong as parents and, and I much more than a hundred but one of the things I think we got right is we did set that as our intent when our children were young. Our, our, our goal is to, is to get you to be independent of us. Our goal is for you to be able to follow that voice, spirit. And, and as our children have become teenagers, and we have plenty of problems with them too, but it's been far, far easier than I expected it would be because so much of it's coming from within them. And so much of it's growing up. And, and again, we, we're sort of releasing more and more. It's like they have nothing to rebel against in a sense because we weren't trying to control them in the first place. Mm-hmm. We're trying for them to be able to listen and follow the conscience that they already have, the light of Christ they already have. And, and I think in a sense, that's really what essentialism is, uh, is to do that ourselves and it's to do it with other people, but to do it unapologetically. Mm-hmm. I just don't have to compete with everyone else. I just don't have to do what everyone else is doing. I can take this very different path. Yeah, I think that's essentialism at its highest level. And really practically when you're talking about, you know, your your prayer and journaling practice, we talk about as, you know, all, you know, the three hosts on our podcast, we all stay at home with our kids among having other, you know, the podcasts and, and hobbies, but we have to take that space in the morning. And it's something that if anyone comes to me with like, I'm overwhelmed, I just say, can you carve out 20 minutes, 15 minutes even to give yourself that little bit of, of space to determine what is essential? Because oftentimes the things that are overwhelming us, we could just disregard entirely. And when my kids are acting out and my kids are all little, they're seven and under. Mm-hmm. So they're not making any big decisions or being like, what right. does my conscience say? But when our days are too full, when I haven't pared it down to, to what is essential to what will create like a peaceful rhythm in our day, they feel it. 
they don't have those moments to recoup. They don't have those moments to be able to calm down and then be kind to their siblings. It's just frenetic energy and you can feel it when it's too much in your day. And so just that space for yourself and for your family, I think is, is so important. Like you were saying, I do want to talk about, we're, we're coming up on our time and I do want to talk a little bit about effortless because so for those of us, you know, we have episodes of our podcast literally literally helping people determine what's essential for them in parenting. So say you've gotten to this space where you feel like everything that that you have in your life is essential, but you're still feeling like it's a lot and you can't really define what done means. You know, it's like that running list. So can we be essential but not effortless? And if so, can you can you speak a little bit to how we can feel more effortless day to day? Absolutely. I mean, this is this is really one of the reasons I wrote effortless is because somebody can identify what's essential. They know it's important. They know it's vital and they can still go at it, let's say, like a perfectionist. Uh, somebody says, okay, my, my, my children are my priority. That's what I really want to focus on today, my relationship. And then they go, it has to be a perfect day. I need my children to look perfect. I need me to show up perfect in every interaction. I need to, and it just, that's, that's like completely wrong. But of course, what it does is it makes, it makes something that's already hard. I mean, parenting is hard, very, very hard, (laughs) but we can make it even harder than it needs to be. And in a variety of ways, imperfectionism is just, is, is one main, you know, cause of that and and so we overcomplicate and we overengineer and we add and add and add all sorts of extra ways uh, you know what a perfect parent would do and and how the house has to look perfect while I'm parenting I can't be and so we've even though we've identified what's essential we go at it in let's say a non-essentialist way and so it it what we do you know essentialism is about doing the right thing, but, but effortless is about doing it in the right way. And I, I now see them as being sort of equally essential, equally vital. There's such a difference when it comes to, to, to how you approach the execution of what matters. I mean, an example in my own life was clearing up after dinner. Uh, you know, dinners go fairly well in our house. I mean, sometimes they just, you know, sometimes it all goes crazy, Mm -hmm. but but there's, they're a little older now. And, and so, you know, we have good conversations and we have, uh, you know, we do, we, we rate, you know, we'll, we'll do cheers to each other and be positive and so on. And there's lots of good stuff. But when it comes to cleanup, my children were like ninjas. They just gone, disappeared. It was like silent, you know, like looking around, where did everybody go? And, and then you're playing cat and mouse, get everybody back here and, <laughs> And then everyone cleaning up and they don't want to. And I, you know, then I'm getting grumpy and, you know, none of it's good. None of that's easy. It's, it's something that's hard. You know, cleaning up is sort of X hard, but the way it was happening makes it sort of two X hard or more. Uh, And so I say, okay, how can we make it effortless? Or in other words, how can we make it less awful? Uh, And so we say, okay, well, let's get clear about what done looks like. So we, we, when the kitchen is completely clean, it looks like this. Now let's divide up the roles. Who's doing what? So now that everyone is clear about their responsibility and what each responsibility done looks like. 
you know, what does a what does a wiped down surface look like? What what is an, a minimum acceptable completion of that task? Doesn't have to be perfect, but what's acceptable? And so we do all this. We do the training. Everything. The day begins. We've gone through this for you know a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, even of preparation. The day arrives. We're going to go. It dinner ends. What happens? Nothing. <laughs> it's ninja city. Everyone's nothing changed. And it took one more piece of, of involvement from the children, right? Collaborating with them where my eldest daughter um, just put on music. It started off with like Disney classics. And, and you know, some people hearing this story will be like, I'm glad I'm not in their family. <laughs> they, they don't want Disney classics going on. But it's evolved into other music too. But the commonality is it's music they want to listen to. It's fun. It's upbeat. And you, what happened for us anyway, is that it just became so much funner. And, and it was sort of almost like a little dance party. I mean, I know of people, I've never done it, but I know of people that have like bought those like disco lights and stuff. And, you know, again, maybe that's not, doesn't fit for your family or your culture or whatever, but, but it's like, take the thing that needs to be done. You've identified it matters. The cleanliness matters. There's a certain standard. You don't have to overdo that. You could, you know, we know what done looks like and, and then make it fun. So that's kind of an example of, I think, sort of effortless comes into play. But I now I have to share another because one of my daughters was, 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 I think, being interviewed. But I can't remember what the context was. I think they come with me on a keynote and I take, I take one of my children with me about 80 percent of the time when I travel. And and so I had one of them with me and they got asked by someone afterwards, okay, well, what does this look like at home? You know, does he do any of this effortless stuff? Do you guys do anything? And, and one of the things that, that, that she brought up was, you know, define what done looks like on the chore list. I still do it occasionally, but I used to do it quite a lot where it'd be like, okay, we're tidying up, cleaning up, we're doing up the yard, we're doing the inside. And what was painful for the children is that they had no sense of when they were done. And my job was pretty clear in my sense. It was like, well, we're just going to tidy until it's all tidied, you know, like so looking at, around at the problems and we're going to work on that stuff. But it was just draining for them to just be dependent on me or, you know, mostly me, but, but to go do this, now do this, now do this, now do this, now do this. And so it was just, they could never get to an end. And so when we, once we actually made a list together, okay, this is what everyone is doing. And when we're done with this, we're done. We're going to go see that movie or you're just going to have free time or whatever it was. And everybody knew what done looks like. It actually worked for everybody. It was better for everyone. And so those are kind of a couple of examples of, of how, how you approach the execution is as important as what you're doing in the first place. Uh, if you want sustainable performance, that's not boom and bust, but it's just consistent performance, you know, in your family. I love that. I loved, so honestly, I feel like we could have a whole nother episode on talking about just how to make things more effortless in your life. And I love those two examples that you gave. I think that's amazing. And for our listeners, I would totally recommend listening or reading to the book because I feel like you have so many really tangible ways to make our lives, like doing things the right way, making it more effortless. I did want to ask you, and I know we are kind of running out of time, but I did want to ask you one of my favorite things that you gave in Effortless. I'm going to read the quote because um, I don't want to get it wrong. Mm. But one of the ones that I love that you said in it of how to help help us have a more effortless state, you were talking about gratitude and you said, when, when you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have. When you focus on what you what you have, you get what you lack. 
And I love that. And I feel like I, I've thought about it like many times since hearing that in your book. Um, can you just talk a, like talk a little bit to that and why that idea can help us be in a more effortless state? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it grew out of, um, of a parenting nightmare, <laughs> um, where like for real, uh, where one of our daughters went from the picture of health, um, and then just like suddenly had a health crisis, uh, totally discombobulated. She went from being high energy, high physical, physical capability, reading constantly, writing a journal every single day, you know, religiously and so on to just everything slowed down. Her capacities were, were, were like in free fall uh, over about a four month period with no diagnosis. So, so she, it took her like two minutes to write her own name you know, versus, you know, just a few seconds. If you write your own name, you can do it. And uh, she, she spoke in very monotone, one word sentences. Um, you know, it took her hours to eat a meal. And, and, and you know, there's just this one side of a body is w- working at different speed than the other. And the neurologists we're meeting for, with are just like doing all these tests. Everything's coming back in the normal range. And, uh, you know, so, so this is the stuff that agony is made of, right? I mean, it, certainly it can or can be she's on the road to becoming to falling into a coma and dying i mean that's like the journey she's on and nobody can do any can offer you anything and it was really in the midst of that that i d- discovered more clearly than i ever had in my life that there are two paths in life well, even after you've chosen the essential path even after you say okay i know what matters so in this case what matters is uh is helping my daughter Eve to to get well right we know the target we know the goal we know that that's the the essential intent but how to approach it uh you you could approach it in a state of anxiety of suffering uh focusing on all the things we lack uh all the things we don't know uh, all the worries about the future all the catastrophic diagnosis that she could have that people well-intended people would send to us regularly, you know, not, not, not doctors, just people that thought, well, maybe she's dying of this, or maybe she's dying of that. You know, they're trying to be helpful, but it's, you could get caught up in that and be consumed in it. And the risk of that is not only are you, is that really miserable way to go through any challenge or go through life, it, it materially reduces your ability to handle the challenge right in front of you. So it takes a really hard situation and makes it impossible. You can't even get out of bed if you're in that state, in a bad enough state. You can't make any progress. You can't make any good decisions. You can't discern or make any sensible trade-offs. And so you, you, you make the recovery of, you know, our daughter's recovery far less likely. Uh, and along the way, you burn out your own health, your relationships and the culture in your family. And I mean, that was... Yeah, it might sound like that's obvious. You don't want to take that path, but actually that's really, that's like the path that's most natural to take. Uh, and we just discovered, I was, I felt prompted to read um, um, uh, an article by, uh, by President Gordon B. Hinckley. And I listened, felt, felt like I should listen to it every day. And I did through the four months I'm describing. It's about finding, it's about developing, cultivating a spirit of, happiness and optimism. And as I re-listened to that again and again and again, it it started to take this 
faintest sense of a path, an alternative path, and make it more and more tangible, more and more real, that I could see the problem differently. And I didn't, it's not rose-tinted glasses. You're not suddenly going, oh, well, it's fine that she's, you know, discombobulating. Of course, it's not that. But suddenly you're not so consumed in the negativity that you fall into a, a, a state of suffering. And so you stay in a state of, of faith, of possibility, of hope. And in that state, you know, th- we, we started doing things like we'd be grateful for every possible thing we could be. We would just say it out loud to each other. Every time I'd complain, I would say something I was thankful for. It, it, it had a sort of magical force about it, positivity, where we started saying, OK, well, we're going to play together. We're going to get around the piano and sing together. We're going to go walks together. We're going to laugh together. We're going to uh, pray together. We're going to do all that we can do, all that's within our sphere of influence. And that state, I would now call sort of an effortless state, that state produced good things. It was a it was a state that allowed revelation to come. You're in a total state of anxiety and fear. You aren't going to get the prompting you need. And so in that state, I remember in the, 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 the receiving like an answer that was just crazy to me and it just said she will find what is lost which is also from a a beautiful painting of the same name and so that was in the midst of there was no evidence to support that every ounce of evidence said the opposite and yet that was the the feeling that came and so you, you start to hold on to that and there's this upward momentum and positivity that came and and so you know that's that's that principle there right let's say it again if you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have. If we focus on the sickness of, of Eve constantly and all we can't control, we lose the, the mental, emotional, spiritual health, the culture of our family, the rest of our, if all of it can collapse, you could lose everything and then obviously lose her. Or by focusing on what you have, you gain what you lack. By focusing on what was right, what was good, what was possible, uh, you, you start to have promptings. Oh, you know, she will find what's lost. Okay, so that's more, more confidence. And and then Anna gets this insight. Well, don't work with all these doctors. This is the one to, to go for. And, and, and we pursued him and he was he, he had a nine-month waiting list, but then suddenly opened up. And all these positive chain reaction follow. There's an upward momentum, a disproportionate power in gratitude. We've all heard gratitude matters. I know that that's not new, but it's 10 times more powerful than people appreciate there's a there's a scripture hidden in plain sight it's an unbelievable scripture that says that that he who receives all things in thanksgiving uh will be will be blessed and the things of this earth will be given unto him an hundredfold yea more right now you can think of being grateful for the good things but what that scripture says is thankfulness in all things that means in the good things and the bad things. And I keep a gratitude journal among many other sort of great gratitude practices that I try to implement. But in the journal, sometimes I'm writing what I'm not, what's not gone well. I'm thankful that we had this disaster today. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I'm thankful for that sentence. I think that we had a big argument today because, and I'm waiting for why that might be a good thing. And it always comes. There's always a reason. There's always something good in it. And you start to get the sense that life is happening not to you, but for you. Not just the good things, but all of them. 
and you start to go, it's all good things, genuinely. They're, they're, they're tough things, the challenges along the way, the tests along the way, but they are all for your good. All things start to work for your good. Little children crying, challenging you, testing you in, in sometimes awful ways are for your good. And, and, you know, a messy house, I'm thankful that the house is messy as I go to bed tonight. I don't know why I'm thankful for that because it helps me gain perspective that in my life because it means I focused on what mattered more because I realized that it didn't kill me because I mean, it, it is a principle. We've heard it. We just underapply it. It is tremendous power to change and transform almost any moment. Next time you see your children, there'll be 10 things they're doing that you could correct them about but look for the one thing that's going right and see what doesn't happen. They will immediately do more of the good thing. They will immediately change the state. So I see, I see the principle of gratitude as being the fastest way to get out of a state of suffering and into a state of, uh, into a more effortless state. It's also the fastest way to change a relationship. Uh, it's the fastest way to get the result that you actually want. Uh, and, and and I could go on and on, but this is to me this isn't one more principle. It's like, well, President Hinckley says it this way. He says, "Listen to this. Let it. Let, hope it changes your life like it changed mine. Let a spirit of gratitude guide your life." He didn't say, "Let a, let gratitude be uh, a nice herb that you add onto your meal, a nice addition, a nice extra. Let it guide your life." I literally believe in a principle now called positive prioritization, which is that as we are strategically grateful, as we really think about the big things that are going right, it will guide us to what the next set of essential goals is. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a much bigger principle, much richer, much uh, game changer, even for those of us that are familiar with the idea, generally speaking. Thank you. Yeah, that was, yeah, I agree to everything you said. And I have to ask, is Eve still on path of healing is she doing better i appreciate you asking that um so it's it was a it was an 18 month journey um I mean, it's been probably two years now but over an 18 month period well let's say over two years um there's now been a what i would call a full recovery like she is back um wow. in a way back for the first time fully okay. uh but but the sense of she will find what is lost well, I'll, I'll say it this way now anyway. If you face this with gratitude, she'll not just find what's lost. She'll lose nothing. That was the idea, that she that everything that was lost could be compensated. We think of the atonement of Jesus Christ as something that helps with, generally speaking, we think about it as being with sin, uh, you know, the, the redemption, the redemptive atonement. Sometimes we think about it as the as, a, as, a, as an enablement. So that we have that term, right? The enabling atonement of Jesus Christ. But I think this um, this idea of the compensatory atonement of Jesus Christ is is at least as as useful and as as important. That as we as we express gratitude, not just in a general way, but gratitude to God and gratitude for Jesus to our Father, as we participate in that in all things everything is compensated every loss is is, is given back uh, now or later and that is deep uh, we've seen it happen with eve and uh that that you know she's 
She graduated high school two years early. She's thriving at a community college. She's doing really well. I'm not saying that, maybe, I know that's like a happy Disney ending or something, but yeah. I do think that it's analogous to, to a lot of the challenges in our lives. And I think when you're saying that, that sounds like a quick resolution right now, but two years of not knowing <laughs> if your child is going to return to their self is not a fast resolution no. as a parent. And I think that that long suffering that we have inside of pain is where that gratitude can not bring us to happiness, right? It's to joy because joy is all of that yep. mixed together. Joy is all the bad stuff and filling it and not disregarding it and just being positive poly with yeah your rose colored glasses like you were saying it is the recognition of it and finding the gratitude inside of it and and that's what you just explained way more beautifully than i did <laughs> yeah. no no it's beautiful how you said it that if i had to summarize the sensation of the two-year experience now i literally would use and i don't use the word lightly joy i would say that about it um, and, and that doesn't mean there wasn't agony. It just means it wasn't just agony. It wasn't just suffering. It was, it was, uh, it was punctuated with, with, with goodness and laughter and it made us. And, and I think that, you know, that, that maybe just puts into final frame for, for why write a book called effortless. And if life is, is easy, you don't need to write a book called effortless. I wrote it because it's so hard in a hundred ways for everybody. I basically think everybody is seriously struggling. The vast majority of people are struggling with something very serious right now. And if you don't know that, it's just because you don't know them well enough, maybe because they're not opening up about it or maybe because, you know, you're too busy to see it and all that. But so that's the justification for writing effortless. The idea is it is hard and we make it harder than it needs to be. And you know, what if there are ways to make it a little easier? What if not everything has to be so hard uh, all the time? And and so I, I I think, you know, the right people are finding finding effortless. And and I'm very grateful for the people that, that have found it and have discovered that, yeah, the suffering way of life isn't isn't doesn't that isn't always the holiest path. You know, there is a path that's that's easier than that. And trusting in the Lord and doing what he says and, and letting him take the burden. I mean, you go read the scriptures on ease in the scriptures. There's a couple about how ease can be bad, but most of them are about, are, are all righteous principles. Uh, my yoke is what? Easy. My yoke is easy. Yeah. My burden is light. Is it? Is that what it feels like to live the, the life of a, of a Christian, to live the life of a, of a Latter-day Saint? I think for a lot of people, the answer would be no to that. But that's just because they haven't discovered this alternative way of doing it. And, and they can. And, uh, and eventually, I think they will. Well, Greg, thank you. All these principles, I think, will be immensely helpful for our audience. You are fantastic. So thanks for helping us find the magic today. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please share this with a friend or loved one. This means so much to us and it helps the podcast continue to grow. 
And if this podcast has meant something to you, there are three things that you can do right now that will help us immensely. The first is to subscribe or follow us. And you can do that by going to our page, wherever you listen to podcasts. And then if you tap on the upper right-hand corner, there is usually a plus sign or a subscribe button. And just go ahead and tap that and that will allow you to subscribe or follow us, which what this does is make sure that you never miss an episode and it really helps us at Find the Magic. The second thing you can do is share it with a friend. So if you like what you heard, um, send it to somebody or post it on social media. This does a ton to help our podcast continue to grow and for us to be able to make more episodes. And lastly, um, if you've enjoyed being here with us on Find the Magic, we would love it if you could leave us a five-star review. Um, We read every single one of those reviews and we appreciate them so much. And we want you guys to know that we feel that you, our listeners, are our friends and we're so grateful. Thank you so much for sticking with us on this journey. We have loved it. So let's find the magic together. (laughs) (laughs) Brown cows. (laughs) 